Oregon Ramenins and the restaurant in Ashland, Massachusetts serves traditional and authentic Japanese ramen Thai noodle soups and the best chicken wings in Metro West. Everything's done in-house from scratch, and they use only the highest quality products from small farms. Co-chef owners, Papanook and Alan McIntosh, combine their culinary skills with traditional Japanese cuisine to create an authentic, amazing flavor in every dish. Located at 1 West Union Street on Ashland, Massachusetts, their phone number is 508 309-3416 or they can be located on Facebook at Dorgan Ramen Ashland and on their website as well www.dorganramen.com Welcome to another exciting episode of the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the sci-fi, fantasy, and horror canceled TV shows that we could cover, and I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Zeneca. And tonight we are covering two more episodes of the 1980s War of the Worlds TV series. Season 1, episode 21, My Soul to Keep, originally aired April 24th, 1989. The aliens are forced to move their unborn infants to a refrigeration facility to save them. Meanwhile, Suzanne's ex-husband, an investigative journalist, appears, seeking to uncover the truth about the Blackwood Project. Dun-dun-dun. We begin with something I was completely unaware of. The ir- I, know, I never thought about the aliens mating rituals or anything like that. What do you mean you haven't thought of them? Hentai has been around. <laughs> right. I just it didn't really occur to me that it didn't really occur it didn't really occur to me to think about the aliens having um you know like pawn far because they talk about there's a nine year mating cycle that they have and Vulcans pawn far is like a seven year mating cycle right Mm, I'm not familiar I don't know exactly that but there's other like creatures on Earth that have like a um a mating cycle that lasts that uh, every so often they have to mate yes. Like pandas have an incredibly short mating, uh, short window of time in their mating cycle, and it's only like one day that they can be pregnant, or up to three days, and then like that once a year. It, it's yeah, it, it's crazy considering pandas, but nine years is a long time between mating cycles. With one of the uh, so okay, so these things are like eggs of some kind really gross. I mean, when we see the baby alien, it looks kind of cute, but not so much. The uh, the egg, the the things that the babies are in, reminds me of like the cocoons that you see the gremlins in, in gremlins. A little bit, but those gremlin cocoons are actually more egg-shaped, and because these have a, uh, a try, uh, I mean, they're, they're, I don't even know how you describe an egg with, with three sides to it, but... Uh, yeah, it, it's almost shaped like a little bit like a pod or a hazelnut with three clumps. So it has a pointed top, and then it kind of bulbs out to look almost like a bulb of garlic or a hazelnut with three little wings to the, to it. It has a, a texture that's like black and mottled, and it's quite large. So I suppose they would have to be in their alien form to actually lay those eggs, because humans would just rip them open. When... They get rid of the baby that is dead or stillborn. Well, it is too hot from the radiation where they're currently living to allow the embryos to mature as they should. So they're actually dying because the environmental conditions are not sustaining their life. So when the dead alien baby cracked out of the shell, you can only see its two little cute arms hanging out there, ceremoniously gets kind of thrown into this uh, pit. I think it's a nuclear pit of some sort. Yeah. And then they realize they have to pack up everyone's babies and take them somewhere cold. And then we're introduced to Susan's ex-husband, who we've heard hints about, but we didn't know who he was. And he's played by uh, the late, great Michael Parks, who died in 2017. Now, on his IMDb, at the very top, you usually list what the best things you're known for. 
and uh, they list the two Kevin Smith films he was in, which was Tusk and Red State, and then as well as the two Grindhouse-style films such as Planet Terror and From Dust Till Dawn, because he's in both those movies. But I honestly had no idea who Michael Parks was probably until From Dust Till Dawn, other than Twin Peaks. Was he yes, anybody? Was he anybody big and significant prior to this in the 60s and 70s that you could point out that you know him from when that was his big, like, his, the big thing that made him who he was to today? Or was he just always that kind of character actor up until the 90s? His credits have a lot of character actor one-shot roles on television, uh, from the Alfred Hitchcock hour to Route 66, the ha- Ranger in on the Run, uh-huh. um, a lot of weird 60s and 70s television shows. Uh, he was on a show called Then Came Bronson for one year as Jim Bronson. So that's probably one of his breakout roles. Maybe. That doesn't really strike me as anything to hunt down and see. Um, it, it, it definitely just seems like he kind of more exploded in like the 90s with his popularity for people of our generation. Perhaps, yeah. Our uh, generation. I will always remember him as playing, um, it's not said in the movie, but in the credits, and on IMDb, I think in the credits it's the artist, but in, on IMDb he's listed as playing Jack Kirby in Ben Affleck's Argo. Oh. He is the storyboard artist. It was revealed that Jack Kirby uh, was the storyboard artist for the Argo uh, plan to get the captured, um, or the... Um, the uh, you know, the people hiding out in the Canadian embassy in mm-hmm. real life. And Jack Kirby helped design the uh, artwork used to for the fake cover. Which, by mm-hmm. the way, if you read the book, Argo, the end of the story, when they finally, when, when uh, Tony finally goes over there to rescue those six people, he gets in, shows them the fake stuff, grabs them, they get out, end of story. That's it. It's over. They dramatize the hell out of their escape for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, now if you saw the movie, <laughs> he even says that in the book. If you see the movie, <laughs> anyway. So but Michael Parks, we, we, uh, we would also recognize him from Kill Bill Volume One and Two. He played Earl McGraw. Yeah. Um, he has uncovered the Blackwood Project, and this is very Woodward and Bernstein meeting with Deep Throat. Deep Throat was the guy who had the information about Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandal, and he would meet with. Woodward and Bernstein and like parking garage and shadow and of course Deep Throat was revealed many years later to be um, uh, uh, somebody working for the FBI or the CIA um, and Woodward and Bernstein you know went on to become famous you know reporters uh, because of this this story go watch the movie All the President's Men it's one of my favorite conspiracy theory movies ever it stars Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman okay. Uh, if you've okay. never seen it before, it's absolutely amazing. It came out, I think, three or four years after the the, uh, the Watergate scandal. So, And it's a great movie, again, starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Very, like, 1970s newspaper reporter typewriter noises and hustling and bustling to get the paper out kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic film. There's some difference between uh, Cash here and our current uh, newspaper and stations. He says that no station or newspaper would print information without there being some hard evidence. So we know that's not true today, but uh, I wish it was. <laughs> um, so Quinn actually did remind me of uh, Q. Yes, Quinn is the guy in the um, the cloak. He is the informant to uh, rat out the Blackwood Project. Because he's a he's not a good guy. Uh, he's got good intentions, not good intentions. It's it's very all. He's more he's more true neutral. You know, he's he is an alien, but he's on Earth. But if he gets caught by the aliens, they'll dissect him. So he has to stay undercover, and then he can't also be caught by the humans. And he only has a timeline in this body because he can't actually jump bodies. So he's just stirring up trouble. That's what he's doing in this episode. Right. And this is the final appearance of John Calicos as Quinn. Yeah. Colicos? Colicos? Iron Horse is worried about Susan's ex-husband being a reporter and getting information out about the Blackwater Project. Um, That's valid. Yes. Totally. 100%. I mean, he works in intelligence, and this is a reporter that Susan was married to once before. And this is a reporter that also has a reputation of just printing stories. 
to uncover the truth. Um, to the point that when Susie goes on her date, Iron Horse uh, bugs their table. As you should. You know, this is a meeting with a reporter. She is a government agent of some sort with a private classified group. Yep, contract government agent. Yeah. Contractor, scientist. True, true. Uh, So there is definitely a cause for alarm from Iron Horse. Iron Horse calls him the Errol Flynn of journalism. Do you know who Errol Flynn was? Yes, he was a swashbuckler. He was a he was an actor. Correct, but he's most famous for his swashbuckling roles. Correct, and playing Robin Hood. Um, he was Australian-born actor, considered to be the natural successor to Douglas Fairbanks. He achieved worldwide fame in the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, only 60 years old when he died, too. And Iron Horse would be very cautious around cash because... Uh, as Suzanne says, he has a way of her mind saying no, but her mouth saying yes. And we don't want that type of situation happening. And then accidentally some state secret, you know, government secret comes out. Oh, there's aliens. He finds out by the end of the episode that there's aliens and no one would believe him anyway. But you want to gauge on the side of caution and don't want to reveal to this reporter who could do anything with this information. Right. Um, I wonder if uh, Iron Horse is also possibly referring to um, Errol Flynn's uh, possibly connections to the Nazis. Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. I have no information about that. Did you ever see The Rocketeer? Long time ago. Uh, James Bond... People occasionally cosplay to Dragon Con. <laughs> James Bond actor, um, the third James Bond actor who was in The Rocketeer, he was like an Errol Flynn kind of character, and he worked for the Nazis in that movie. Motorcycles. warming up so Philadelphia is getting a lot of motorcycles. Gotcha. Uh, Timothy Dalton is who I'm referring to. Okay. Um, I haven't gone ice skating in such a long time. I don't do that. Man, it looks like so much fun. I've tried it a few times, fallen on my ass, and it was cold. I don't really like the cold, and I don't like falling on my ass. I was going to say, you don't like falling on your ass. No, I don't. I feel so bad because I want to do it. It looks fun. I just can't master it in the short span of time that I can tolerate myself falling down. Would you rather fall on your ass on ice or an asphalt wearing, like, roller skates or rollerblades? Neither, and I don't do that either. Oh. I will roller skate in a roller rink. I won't roller skate on the sidewalks and whatnot because I had a friend that hit his rollerblade wheel in a crack in the pavement. His face went into the, into the concrete, and he lost three of his teeth in the front. So, no thank you. You don't want to know what I'm signing up to do soon. Something oh, more no. dan- It's something more dangerous than that. Oh, no. What just came by your house? A motorcycle. Mm-hmm. You're going motorcycling? I'm, uh, I did a private lesson a week ago, and I have another one oh. coming up in May. Oh, man, you're brave. And then I'm going to get my license. I I like that crash roll cage around me. I will be keeping to my neighborhood for a while. Mm-hmm. I am not taking this out on, like, the highway. Jeez. Ah, Stay safe, man. <laughs> Always wanted to do it. Well, you go, you. Yeah. So when Susan comes out, she's a knockout in this dress. And this is actually the second time she's gone on a date where she's like got all dolled up, and the guys are like, oh my "God, Susan's a woman." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like literally this is the second time. So it's the second time for Susan. It's the we've uh, Blackwood has had two dates. Uh, Iron Horse has had one. It was the Native American, mm-hmm. and Norton not getting anything. No. No. Maybe he'll get some in the next couple episodes. 
Maybe. I don't want to speculate. I'm just saying. Um, Be nice. Yeah. So he accuses the organization that Susan is working for to be a death squad, and he's got proof that they're murdering people. And he is so far from the truth, it upsets her that she walks away, and that's when we find out that Blackwood had the table bugged. Um, I want to point out that the next scene, when they are, uh, when they're like, they're getting into the complex, they go down a sewer, up through a box, and then through a door. Did you notice that, like, the way it's cut? It was a little odd. Okay, have you ever seen The Thing from Another World? The original Thing movie, the one that John Carpenter would base his movie on? Okay, they're opening and closing doors and going in from one room to the other constantly in that movie. It's the constant joke of the film. It's opening and closing doors, opening and closing doors every five minutes. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when when you see a, a bedroom set decorated in some drama and there's like 12 lamps in there or something like that like yeah. Bella's bedroom in Twilight is pointed out to have like a dozen lamps or something it's ridiculous uh, but this motion where they go down the sewer then up through the box then through the door I'm like what is this <laughs> just cut to them going into the place <laughs> it's, it's, it was just a little jarring that's all <laughs> Blackwood wants to take an alien baby with him. When they have the alien baby, it looks like a couple of ass cheeks. <laughs> well, that's because you're only seeing it on one side. You know, if you saw it from the top, you'd see that it had three parts. It just looks so ridiculous. <laughs> and then it reminds it's me cute. It reminds me of the dinosaur in um, Jurassic Park, the first yes, one. Yes, come on, cute. That was adorable. Come on. There we go. There we go. Like, you know, John Hammond is, like, encouraging the velociraptor. <laughs> I thought for sure that that infant was going to uh, imprint on Suzanne. I was expecting a little bit more with that little infant, uh, but it grabs her and then she freaks out and they kill with a Bunsen burner. Yes, I, I was expecting the imprinting too. I wasn't expecting him to turn into like Slimer and they have a pet alien for the rest of the series. Uh, but uh, it definitely reminds me of uh, the scene in... Um, uh, Secret of the Ooze, when Toka and Razar come out of their cage, and they're like, Mama! To the Shredder. Yeah. <laughs> and Shredder's yeah. like, They're babies! <laughs> they're <Yeah>. stupid! <laughs> the professor's like, Okay, they're stupid babies. Because <laughs> they're like banging each other on the head. That just yeah. happened recently in the Turtle comic book. They, The Turtles cannot get Toka and Razar under control, and they're monstrously huge. Until Leo gets the idea that somebody video phone Karai back at the hospital where she's recuperating from uh, from uh, her helicopter crash, and they put her on spe- they put her on screen or whatever, and Toka and Razor stop, and they're like, "Mama!" <laughs> and she tells them to stand down and stop destroying the city. <laughs> yeah. Um, the alien foot a- soldiers find the egg missing, and then the advocates are all, Death to all humans! Which should be the chant better. That should be their chant more than the one they're always saying in every episode. To life immortal? The life immortal sounds dumb compared to death to all humans, because they really want to wipe us out. <laughs> well, that's true. But it makes me wonder what their uh, basis for immortality is, because they keep killing each other pretty often in this show. And so I'm wondering if there's some sort of, uh, I don't know, regeneration cycle or something where they know that they're going to be born into a new alien, so death isn't that big of a deal to them. I don't know. Makes me curious about their religion. The guy who wrote this episode alongside the creator, Greg, John uh, Kubichin, also wrote uh, Land of the Lost, the 1970s TV series. Do you remember that? Delightful show? You know, I don't think I saw the television show. You never saw the television show from the 70s? In the reruns no. of the 80s? Wow. No, I I know that it exists, but I don't think I've actually seen it. He was also writer of 16 episodes of the Plastic Man comedy cartoon series. <laughs> oh, wow. Which is a DC comic book character, if you're not familiar with him. Yeah, he's the stretchy guy. He's one of the two stretchy guys. DC has two stretchy guys. There's the Plastic Man and the Elongated Man. An elongated man has been a character uh, part of the Flash show for a while until the guy who plays him got in some hashtag Me Too trouble and he is no longer on the show. Ah. Yeah. I don't think this is one of those I can apologize and come back and I'll be okay kind of things. Mm-hmm. Anyway. 
Um, the thing, so they burn. They uh, the thing is a is a basically it's a monster, and they they kill it after Iron Horse wanted to kill it to begin with. They just listened to him. They wouldn't be in this problem. Now I couldn't quite see what was it doing to Susan that she was screaming. It just grabbed her. I mean, she was protected. She's had the plastic between her and the baby. So, right. I mean, there. I don't think she was in any serious danger, but she freaks out. And so, therefore, they end up killing it because it won't release its grip off of her. The team crashes the uh, the uh, the nursery. This is Omega. This is Omega Squad, which I love the name of that. Um, they should have their own spinoff show, don't you think? <laughs> Yeah. And when the aliens die and Cash sees it, don't the aliens I think I swear in other episodes it's more green and gooey, but in this episode when the Martians die, it looks like cottage cheese. It's usually a whitish depending on what they're wearing and whatnot. They sometimes add in some either red blood or green goo or whatever. But usually it's like this white foamy stuff. Right, but they this, just went a little overboard on this episode. But it looks more like cottage cheese in this one and the next one. I don't know. I I, I think it looks like foam mm. bubbles. This is also the first time ever, and not in shadow, not an extreme close up, not off to the side, not barely on screen. We see an entire full frontal alien costumed actor attacking Susan. Yeah. Like head yeah. to toe, like completely in shot. We normally don't see that. We see what the arm. We see again a quick close up. It's silhouettes, yeah. Or they're our, not our attacking. They're just doing whatever the advocates have them doing off to the side. I mean, we've seen the aliens in full frontal, you know, mm-hmm. nude. <laughs> I don't know who this <laughs> is. There's a guy called Cabby Aliens. That's somebody else. And then we have the three advocates, but there's no credit for who this is. Mm, I, yeah, I don't see anyone. But two of Cash's people get killed, and they do have names. They're just called Camera Crew 1 and Camera Crew 2. <laughs> One played by Peter Van Wart. I'm not really familiar with who he is. He's a bit part character actor and was working up until 2012. Uh was an Earth Final Conflict in Mutant X, which we've mentioned a few times. And then... <coughs> excuse me. Oh. We have Andrew Mayers, who was on... Andre Mayers was on Counter-Strike, uh, Law & Order LA. Never on watched the it. Show Charmed. I watched that, yep. Counter-Strike, wow. 65 episodes of Counter-Strike. Man, I, I've heard of that show, but I have never seen it before. Yeah, as, uh, just before he did War of the Worlds, uh, this episode, he was on Night Heat. Do you remember or three episodes? Do you remember the TV series Ghost Rider? Ghost Writer? Oh, a W R I T, yes. Yes, not writer like Johnny Blaze, but yeah, Ghost Writer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was the new Ghost Writer Mysteries. Um, I don't know if these two are connected, but I remember Ghost Writer, that that being a show, uh supposed to I think it was like educational. Tasha's team gets horribly, horribly mutilated, and he learns the truth. And knowing is half the battle, Cash. Yeah, because while Quinn said things that were technically correct and refused to give him any sort of uh, evidence for it, it the the reality is that it's a little bit more nuanced than that. These are not just illegal aliens. These are illegal aliens. Right. Trying to take over the world, you know, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, uh, whenever someone says that, I automatically always think of this. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. <laughs> Which is fitting, considering it's in the 80s. Could you hear what I just played? No, I can't hear that. Oh, it's uh, it's some kid saying to uh, Flint, Now we know, and knowing is half the battle. G.I. Ah. Joe! Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that's it. It ends with uh, Cash learning, you know, the truth, and that that's credits. It's over. Well, it's, un- it's unfortunate, though, that this episode and the character Cash doesn't uh, go on for very much longer because Debbie really missed her father. 
And Cash shows up and, and claims to be wanting to, you know, get more with his family and all that, and then turns out that he's just there for the for the story. So I think Debbie is the loser in this entire situation. Her dad's just going to move on out of town and not see her, even though he now knows what he knows. Yeah, I think Debbie's the big loser in this situation. That's all the episode notes I have for this. And I believe the focus area coming up is going to be about the Invisible Man, right, Mr. Zeneca? That's right. Awesome. And she'll be covering just the H.D. Wells Invisible Man, and we'll be back with her focus point and a sponsor here on the Dead TV Podcast. Ever imagine yourself invisible? Today I'm talking about H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man, published in 1897. As long as there have been stealth predators, there has been the idea of being unseen. To truly become invisible meant that you were touched by a god, magical, otherworldly. One of the first Invisible Man-style stories is from 375 B.C. Plato wrote The Republic. Within The Republic, Book 2, is a discussion of justice and the social constructs for injustice. Among the philosophy and political theory is a story of a ring of invisibility known ever after as the Ring of Gaiis, or Yees. The ring is a hypothetical, not a real object, but Plato used a real historical figure for his thought experiment. Yees was the ruler of Lydia, an area that's now known as Turkey, in 687 to 652 BC. His rise to power was legendary. He became a royal guard, killed the ruler, and then married his widow. So Plato, using Jaiz's unlikely path to leadership and attributing it to a magical ring, was instantly relatable to his audience. That was just the backdrop, though, of the philosophical questions. Such as, can anyone resist the temptation to indulge their darker appetites if given the power to do so? Say, with a ring of invisibility? Does the ability to have complete immunity from punishment create corruption? Or can a just man refrain from using the stealth afforded to the invisible? This sounds so familiar. Hmm, where have I heard this before? Sounds a lot like Lord of the Rings. Tolkien may have gotten this concept from the same place H.G. Wells did, Plato. But whether it's a ring or a mythological helmet or a cloak, the morality and ethical questions go along with it. The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells is that concept wrapped in science. It was originally released as a serial fiction in Pearson's Weekly. The story is very simple. In a nutshell, it's the story of a scientist who turned himself invisible, can't turn back, and what disappointment and terrors happen. You can really say this book is about the perils of being invisible. Townsfolk won't leave him alone, and to be fully invisible means to be naked. Dirt or rain or snow betray your shape, dogs aren't fooled at all, and any food or drink can be seen for hours afterwards before they are absorbed. His blood becomes visible as it clots, so any injuries appear after a while. The Invisible Man, Griffin, isn't likable. He's rude, curt, foul-tempered, and quick to anger. And you get the idea that he was this way before the experiments. By the end of the book, he's threatening to kill his college friend that he confided in after he tipped off the police to his whereabouts, upset over the betrayal. It's not a very exciting book, but it is mind-expanding for sure. What H.G. Wells did that blew the minds of Victorian readers is explain how it could be done. The research and scientific basis for how light reflects off things and how we perceive them was basically not something you thought of in the Victorian age. He boiled down the science into terms that normal people could understand. Out of the whole book, this is the most valuable passage. Just listen to this. Light fascinated me. Optical density, the whole subject is a network of riddles. But consider, visibility depends on the action of the visible bodies on light. Either a body absorbs light or it reflects or refracts it, or it does all these things. If it neither reflects nor refracts nor absorbs light, it cannot of itself be visible. You see an opaque red box, for instance, because the color absorbs some of the light and reflects the rest, 
all the red part of the light to you. If it did not absorb any particular part of the light, but reflected it all, then it would be a shining white box, silver. A diamond box would neither absorb much of the light nor reflect much from the general surface, but just here and there, where the surfaces were favourable, the light would be reflected and refracted, so that you would get a brilliant appearance of flashing reflections and translucencies, a sort of skeleton of light. A glass box would not be so brilliant, not so clearly visible as a diamond box, because there would be less refraction and reflection. You see that? From certain points of view you could see quite clearly through it. A box of very thin common glass would be hard to see in a bad light, because it would absorb hardly any light and refract and reflect very little. And if you put a sheet of common white glass in water, still more if you put it in some denser liquid than water, it would vanish almost altogether, because light passing from water to glass is only slightly reflected or reflected or indeed affected in any way. It is almost as invisible as a jet of coal gas or hydrogen is in air, and for precisely the same reason. And here is another fact you will know to be true. If a sheet of glass is smashed, Kemp, and then beaten into a powder, it becomes much more visible while it is in the air. It becomes at least an opaque white powder. This is because the powdering multiplies the surfaces of the glass at which refraction and reflection occur. In the sheet of glass there are only two surfaces. In the powder the light is reflected or refracted by each grain it passes through, and very little gets right through the powder. But if the white powdered glass is put into water, it forthwith vanishes. The powdered glass and water have much the same refractive index, that is, the light undergoes very little refraction or reflection in passing from one to the other. You make the glass invisible by putting it into a liquid of nearly the same refractive index. A transparent thing becomes invisible if it is put in any medium of almost the same refractive index. And if you will consider only a second, you will see also that the powder of glass might be made to vanish in air if its refractive index could be made the same as that of air, for then there would be no refraction or reflection as the light passed from glass to air. Yes, yes, said Kemp, but a man's not powdered glass. No, said Griffin, he's more transparent. Nonsense. Paper, for instance, is made up of transparent fibres, and it is white and opaque only for the same reason that a powder of glass is white and opaque. And not only paper, but cotton fibre, linen fibre, wool fibre, woody fibre, and bone, Kemp, flesh, Kemp, hair, Kemp, nails and nerves, Kemp. In fact, the whole fabric of a man, except the red of his blood and the black pigment of hair, are all made up of transparent, colourless tissue. So little surfaces to make us visible one to the other. For the most part, the fibres of a living man are no more opaque than water. Actual scientific research would say that if you were invisible, transparent like that, you would also be blind, as your eyeballs are designed to keep light out in order to function. In 1933, Universal Pictures released The Invisible Man, directed by James Whale, starring Claude Rains, thus welcoming The Invisible Man to their lineup of Universal Monsters. The movie was a huge success and has been chosen by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The movie is close to the book, but there are some definite differences. It's a good movie. Highly recommend. But as for the most pure representation of H.G. Wells' writing, I have to give it up to the BBC station in the UK. The Invisible Man 1984 production was a six-episode miniseries that plays like it was ripped straight from the books. Quotes, even. You can watch the series on YouTube. The ending has a bit more added for a better series ending, but it was closer to how the book ended than the Universal movie was. The graphics are good, too. British 1984 is usually like USA 1974, but these were solid mid-80s graphics. I was also impressed that the BBC version included a small but important detail that the Invisible Man was an albino, or more accurately, suffered from albinism. As time moves on, the Invisible Man becomes less tied to H.G. Wells' work and more of an archetype character by himself. The latest Invisible Man movie came out in 2020. The invisibility suit was just a tool of terror in a domestic violence storyline, it was okay, suspenseful, but as far away from HD's work as you could get. The wackiest Invisible Man movie was Memoirs of an Invisible Man, starring Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah. Get this, directed by John Carpenter. In that one, his clothes also turned invisible with him. Chevy Chase fumbling with his clothes is hilarious. 
Personally, I've never had the desire to become invisible, for good or for evil. But if you had the power to become invisible, would you? And what would you do? Good night. On the next all-new episode of War of the World. We gotta be strong if we're gonna get out of here. The aliens are abducting humans for use as experimental guinea pigs. All I want to see is humans killing each other. And the team must go undercover to expose their diabolical plot. The terrorists have begun the war. The drug exceeded all our expectations. Can the team control the devastation induced by this alien drug? Find out on the next all-new episode of War of the World. Just say no to drugs here on the Dead TV Podcast. Next exciting episode of War of the Worlds. You don't control me. <laughs> when did Dare start? When was, because uh, that was under the Bush administration, right? That was his whole thing? Because I, uh, uh, I wasn't in preschool. I was in elementary school, about to go to middle school when Dare started. Dare started, Dare started earlier than I thought it did. I thought Dare started in the late 80s. Dare was founded in 1983 under Daryl Gates. But I remember the Bush administration pushing it like crazy. You know what I mean? There was that TV special called Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue. And um, uh, Barbara Bush uh, did the opening for it. And it was all your favorite TV characters, cartoon characters, teaming up to help a little boy stop his brother from hanging out with like a, a drug demon of some kind. So you had like Michelangelo from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Garfield and, and uh, Bugs Bunny and many more. Alf, uh, Kermit the Frog. Well, they were just talking about saying no to drugs that might do you some physical harm, but will definitely be fun. These are drugs that will definitely do you harm and are definitely not fun. Correct. And Mr. Zeneca has a plot synopsis for us to help you stay away from drugs. Season 1, Episode 22, So Shall Ye Reap, originally aired May 1st, 1989. The team set up in Chicago to investigate a spate of kidnappings, but encounter resistance from the local police. Nevertheless, they discover a secret cell of alien scientists who are trying to create a designer drug which turns addicts into frenzied killers. Now, right from the very beginning, I am thinking of this amazing film. Can you spare some cutter, me brothers? <laughs> We don't want to live in a stinking water like this. Oh? And what's so stinking about it? It's a stinking water because there's no law and order anymore. One of the seminal classic films of the 1970s starring Malcolm McDowell, A Clockwork Orange. Mm. Just play, movie. just play the trail, beginning of the trailer for it. I was trying to find the radio spot for it, which would would have been really great. But yeah, this uh, you know the thing he's got around his eyes while they're showing him those little messages of weapons and breasts. Uh, yeah, <laughs> reminded me of Clockwork Orange <laughs> a little bit. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I was like watching this like in the very beginning. I rewound it. I was just like, yeah, that's a lot of weapons and that's a lot of cleavage. <laughs> erotic erotic pictures and weapons stimulate the span. <laughs> That's what the aliens say. Well, you know, yeah. If you if you give certain people drugs and flash them that stuff, yeah, you create some sort of psychological break or whatnot. Anyway, this this guy actually dies from I guess a brain overload. It's oh not God. really clear. Right. I mean, just ex- eyes and ears. Boom. Just burst blood. Like it's. It's not like his head explodes, but inside of his head explodes. It's like the ears are just dripping blood, like gushing it. And then he goes, cut to a club. And it's a club with music that I actually liked. Hold on one second. I have... Are you familiar with the the app Shazam? Yes. Okay. I'm going to pull up my library because I put Shazam on to see if I was correct about this. Do you know what the name of the music is from this scene? No, I was trying to find that out, but I couldn't. All right, here we go. Give it a second. This is from Long Live the New Flesh by Mark Cronenberg. Oh! From Videodrome. Wow! No wonder I like that music. Of course you would. (laughs) 
I like body horror. What can I say? Yeah, I saw your post earlier today. Damn it, there were, I hate this uh, virus. I wanted zombies or whatever, and I'm just like, yeah, I, I wonder why want you zombies. want zombies. <laughs> I'm more prepared for zombies. I'm, you know, if it's about uh, in, in some sort of apocalypse situation, I want to be getting cut and losing weight, not gaining fucking 30 pounds. <laughs> Mark Cronenberg is an Italian underground hip-hop rapper, beat maker, synth-wave, dark-synth composer. I'm assuming he's related to David Cronenberg, because that's from the movie, like they're brothers or something. I'm trying to find it right now, but I'm not having any luck. they got to be related, right? Because this is from Videodrome. I, I think that would be a logical assumption. Right. Uh, I was not familiar with uh, Mark Cronenberg, but uh, yeah, he's a hip-hop rapper synthesizer. Well, I dig his style, then, yes. on that song. Definitely. So we got, like, two club scenes in here. We got the dancing club music at the beginning, and then later on there's, like, a stripper nightclub. Very funny. <laughs> so so in this club scene, there's two girls, and one is the lure, and the other is the catch. One girl basically uh, lures this older man yep. uh, to talking with him. And, although there's a startle moment when he pulls out his wad of cash, and she has this moment of like, what am I going to do? And then she just kind of goes with it, takes them to the takes him to the elevator, and then the other girl, which she's credited in the IMDb as other girl, goes into the elevator with them, and does what I can only put uh, the description as the more talk neck pinch, kind of like the Vulcan neck pinch, but it's a little higher. Right, reminds and he me passes of- right out. When people do that incorrectly, it reminds me of like in uh, Spaceballs where Nor- um, Lone Star does it, and he's just like, what are you doing? The Vulcan death pinch? And he's like, it's a little higher. Right here? That's the yeah, spot. Yeah, the Vul- Vulcan death pinch, a little higher. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, that's the spot. And then he passes out. Um, I've never had a Greyhound, have you? And I don't mean the dog, I mean the drink they order at the bar. I have no idea what that refers to. It's a, it's a cocktail. It's, gr- it's a Greyhound yeah, is a cocktail. I don't know what's in it. I'm about to tell you. A Greyhound is a cocktail consisting of grapefruit juice and either gin or vodka mixed and served over ice. If the rim of the glass has been salted, the drink is instead called a salty dog. Huh. Interesting. No, I have not had that. I'm more of a beer and wine person, so you've drunk with me. That's I'm very simple, very easy. I'm coconut rum on the rocks. Did you have that when we went drinking, when we were at the Vampire Ball? Yes, we did. You, you I, did? I had, you did? Okay. I had... Yeah, I had a uh, Malibu rum on the rocks, doubled. Oh, okay. All right. It was like three years ago now, so I couldn't remember. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to try and do another one in August. Hopefully the pandemic will allow. Yeah, hopefully a lot of things will allow. Uh, a lot of conventions have been canceled already this year, so we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see. We'll keep you informed of what conventions we go to coming up, because right now, not going to anything. Uh, I yeah. tried to do outdoor dining today at three different diners. None of them were doing it. And I asked why, and they're like, we don't want to do that anymore. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. I'm like, well, then I guess you don't want my money either. Because <laughs> I could just, like, take out and go. I'm, I've, I've been doing that, like, all year. You know what I mean? I could have just stayed home and made myself breakfast. But I tried three diners, and nobody was doing outdoor dining. Yeah. Their their attitude literally was, you could take it outside and eat it. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, jeez, I came here to get out of my house to relax because you're cooped. You're supposed to stay in your house to stop, to not get infected by the virus. <laughs> the scene where the girl is eating glass with the other, you know, so everyone's like locked up in this like this set looks so familiar. Do we know where they filmed this? Because good God, does this look familiar? It, this is driving me nuts. Where they're captured, where all the people are being captured. It was driving me nuts because it's like I've seen this before or I'm having Mandela effect brain and this just looks like where everyone is captured and imprisoned or something like that. You know what I mean? Or it looks like any other insane asylum. Mr. Zeneca, the doctor... Well, I mean, the doctor, I, I, could, the, I, I could say that where they filmed all those cages might be somewhere close to some place that I would party, but, you ha, know. Ha, ha. In the 80s, that wasn't my bag. I was... Little. <laughs> no, that would be weird. Uh, <laughs> I guess we're going to start at a young age for our weird, kinky obsessions. Like, they need, need to learn them from somewhere. Uh, but that is a whole other podcast to discuss that on. Um, the doctor that is... Care- that it, uh, Okay, so the doctor who is being told that if they fail, he's going to die is crying. And when I've seen him cry, 
I'm think I just I'm like there's no crying in alien invasions you pussy what what are you crying about you're supposed to be this badass alien you're gonna cry because you're gonna die because you're a failure your species this was I so think, weird I don't think that was actually him physically crying out of emotion I think that his skin suit was leaking it was leaking from the tear ducts yeah. Uh, that just doesn't seem right. It should be leaking in other ways, like he's falling apart and stuff. Don't know. This is the first time we've seen this, but he certainly wasn't crying like out of emotion. The lieutenant that is working with our team wants answers, and they don't think that she can handle the truth. And she's been working in Chicago for 10 years, and when they finally tell her about the alien invasion, she's like, that's the craziest story I've ever heard. It's like, really? You're a cop in Chicago for 10 years, and that's the craziest story you've ever heard? You have to admit, aliens are pretty crazy. But come on, Chicago for ten years? I sure yeah. these are some whoppers. <laughs> if you've got people believing they're aliens, that's one thing. She could totally handle that. But aliens, real aliens? Yeah, that is a bit out of her knowledge base. It must have been freezing because they look like they are legitimately cold. You know what I mean? They're not acting like they're cold. They look like they are freezing to death outside in this scene. Yeah. Um, the team then gets arrested, which is very funny. Um, and then we have alien sex workers, and as soon as she like leans in with her rotted face or whatever, he's like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't think so." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was gonna wear a rubber, but I don't even think that would probably protect me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that's too far gone. Now. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not. Uh, this isn't uh, slut shaming anyone, but if your date when you try to pick her up is falling apart, do not have sex with her. <laughs> yeah. Um, just practice safe sex, people. Just don't pick up alien prostitutes. <laughs> Reminds yeah, she, me... Oh, go ahead. Uh, she was falling to pieces right there before her before her eyes. Reminds me of the, um, the, uh, the zombie prostitutes in Resident Evil 2, the movie. Did you ever see that? I did it a long time ago. He's, like, cruising, you know, through the apocalypse of Raccoon City, and then he sees a couple, like, half-naked women, you know, and then he gets closer, and they're all like, ah... Ah. He's like, oh no! <laughs> or uh, God, I'm trying to remember what movie I remember. Somebody is getting a blowjob, and they, they they lift the head of the girl up, and she's all like, <laughs> Bar- so In this episode, uh, the the drug seems to be a type of drug that you can eat, and that becomes injected. And they injected it seemed like the they- drug was doing both things. And they inject it in the ears, too. Of all places. Yeah. I'm sorry, but needles going into my ears do not sit well with me. No, I mean, that would puncture your eardrum at least. I've had enough with needles this past week, thank you. Oh, your, your oral surgery, right. They had like they they did like three needles in my mouth or whatever, Ooh, and that hurt yeah. more than them being like, okay, you're ready? I'm like, oh, no, okay, I think you're ready. And then, all right, we're going to pull it. And then you just hear crack, and you're like, ah! and they're like, ah, ah. <laughs> like, did you feel anything? I'm like, no, I'm like but a lot of pressure, huh? And I'm like, ah! <laughs> yeah, because they they literally stab you in the mouth to loosen it, and then they pull it. Oh yeah. And they want to do it, and they have to do it like that because they don't want a piece of it, you know what I mean, falling in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, take care of your teeth, people. <laughs> Uh, the police chase of this episode is so bad. I don't understand why the driver is driving as radically as he is. I understand what's happening in the back seat would drive anyone nuts with they're they're running out of the medicine, but nothing is affecting the driver for him to drive like the way he is, and the police are no, barely the, even shooting at him. The the human uh, test subject is grabbing at everything, so he's grabbing at the driver too. Oh, it didn't look like that whatsoever. <laughs> It just looked like the driver was driving erratically just to have a cool chase scene in the in the episode. Yeah, maybe that too, but yeah. Uh, they dropped off the test subject at the strip club, and he goes freaking nuts! That stuff, that the drug that they're using, it's like this pink, oozy... It, it kind of reminds me, because of the way it is or whatever, when it falls out of the vat or whatever, and how stretchy, it kind of reminds me of the pink ooze in Ghostbusters too. Yes, it totally did! Yeah. I was just about to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Omega Force is once again mentioned I kind of wish they would give some character development to some of these characters we've only ever had at one time 
um, but we never do. So Omega Forces once have been mentioned. Um, the orderly in this episode, I swear to God, I thought it was Clyde Barker. Do we know who he is? It's not Clyde Barker, but I, I swear to God, I thought it was Clyde Barker. Uh, there's young alien aid. Could that be him? Possibly. But it's not Clyde Barker, right? No. Okay. It's just he has a look to him that I thought it was, like, I was like, Clyde Barker? Maybe? No. Clyde Barker was too big. It's, by 1989, his career had blown up. So one of the things that I think the aliens fail at, you know, at the end of this episode, they're, they say to themselves, you know, why do the humans keep getting out of our schemes? You know, it's a mystery. Well, each one of their attack events seems to be very localized, small scale, or they try to do something very fast to the point where it's no longer effective. So this drug might have actually taken over the world and had the effect that they wanted if the delay on the activation was longer. So people could actually get addicted to it and seek it out in the normal chains of distribution. Um, when the Lieutenant Novak uh, saw her family's friend, Don uh, Giuseppe, you know, family friend who's a, a drug dealing com- comrade, <laughs> weird relationship there. But he says that there's people muscling in on his territory, and if this drug didn't affect everyone exactly from the moment it's ingested or eaten, so that the murderous rampage was later, it could actually spread out a bit more, and it would have more of that kind of cocaine slash PCP type of feel to it, and that people would take it, want more of it, and then go out and kill people to get stuff to get this drug. I think they just made the activation on it way too short. Hmm. You know, anyone going bonkers from this drug is only going to affect the immediate vicinity where they drop off this person. And then as we find out in this episode, the problem is picking up this person later to give them more of the drug. They didn't really establish a drug network to distribute this. I think they were just constrained uh, by the time link they have for the episode. That's what it really boils down to. Well, I mean, yeah, but if I'm thinking about this in reality, you would want your plans to be most effective, not just hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, you know, and the the scientist says it'll take two weeks, and, like, you have a day. Well, you know, that's probably where you're messing up. If you're the lowest common denominator in all the problems that you face, maybe you should rethink how you do things. Absolutely. Absolutely. By the way, you know, okay, so we have um, one of the prostitutes in the episode um, is uh, Shelly Owens. Yeah, Shelly Owens. Yep. Um, Not a huge actress. She was in uh, The X-Files. She was in Millennium. um, And she was uh, principal in Gorillas in the Mist, the, you know, the Scorny Weaver movie. Um, I, uh, then I, I clicked a fascinating link that she is the sister of Chris Owens, who played Jeffrey Spender on the X-Files, kind of an important character to the overarching mythology. No. Somebody asked us, would you ever do the X-Files? And I'm like, good God, no. <laughs> the X-Files That's has like a, a thousand series. podcasts that get into it. On top of the fact, it's like 11 seasons. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as much as I did like early X-Files, that's a lot of seasons to get through. And we kind of have a limit on, you know, what it, what what did we say? Seventy episodes was our upper limit. That is, yeah, and we we were not we're not doing seventy episode shows again for quite some time. I mean, we we did what two Friday the Thirteenth and and the Adams Family were sixty six. Yeah, we're and like you know we we've come close with forty four for Witchblade and Reaper's going to be forty four because it's only two seasons, but it's like good God that's still more than I want to do. Um, the closest we would come to the X-Files is possibly doing the Lone Gunman. It was one season, 13 episodes. Mm, okay. You know what I mean? And that yeah. would be the exception. Or Millennium. But a Millennium is three seasons, 70-something episodes. So yeah. it, it, we would really, I mean, it just, uh, I mean, 
I've never had Lance Hendrickson on my show. I've met him a couple times, you know what I mean, taking pictures with him, but I've never had him on Radio Horror, so that would be like a, all right, we're going to get Lance Hendrickson on the podcast, we're going to do Millennium, <laughs> you know? <laughs> because it's like, why not? <laughs> uh, but the the Lone Gunman would be the closest thing we come, or like Altered States or something, you know, one of those other Chris Carter shows that we know we, we would have X-Files connections to. Um, but... No, there, there's there's not even any reason to do Lone Gunman. There there's so many X Files podcasts out there that they will have covered the Lone Gunman. So, but uh, next week uh, we will be announcing our uh, mid show cartoon that we're gonna do. We haven't done a cartoon in a while, and we got a good one picked. So, yes, I'm excited. Yes, Mr. Zeneca is very excited. I am mediocrely excited. It's Connected to a comic book. And You're always I've... mediocrely excited when it's a, a thing that I pick out. No! What? <laughs> I... Yeah. No! You I weren't was... quite hip on the Adams Family until I convinced you I had all this information. What I mean... Okay. Oof. I like what we are... We, uh, oh, I almost said it. I, I like what we have picked out, but you're... Like, you, you seemed more into it than I was with this... Tune. Yes. I have... The upcoming show is very special to me, so I would say that and leave it there. Okay, that's what I meant. Not that I'm not excited. I, I am, but, you know, I went out and got the, you know, original issues for it to, uh, to do, to, to you know, for it. Um, the patients escape and holy hell breaks out. Omega Squad breaks in. The orderly gets a serious beatdown, and then they're all swimming around that pink slime stuff on the floor, and the episode pretty much ends. The advocates yeah. decide to discontinue the drug because the humans are just too much trouble. Yeah, and and they don't attack other users, but they will attack the aliens and the human bodies. Right. So uh, too dangerous to have those people around because they'll kill us too. Yeah. Definitely. And that's all the notes I have for this episode of the Dead TV Podcast. But before we go, unless you have any other notes. Not on this episode. I have a letter from a listener. Um, I need to pull it up right now. It's an email. And you can send us an email, thatradiofar at gmail.com. Listener says, thank you for coming back to this Paramount uh, network of shows with War of the Worlds. I was always a huge fan of this because I was a huge fan of the movie and I found out about this show many, many, many years later on the Sci-Fi Channel. I knew about it in syndica- when it was in syndication and then reruns on the Sci-Fi Channel, which were always fun for me. Um, I was a big fan of your coverage of the Friday the 13th TV series, and I would love to know if you are ever going to cover Blade the series when the Marvel show happens to come about, or Brimstone, which is a fantastic show about a guy who makes a deal with the devil, and the devil's played by the clamp actor from Gremlins 2. Sincerely yours, John. Brimstone would be cool. It's 13 episodes. would be very quick. And Blade, we said we would do whenever Marvel gets around to releasing the Blade um movie and there's some press about it for us to kind of latch on to so yeah I'd, I'd totally be up for doing those yep brimstone is fun i don't know where if it's on dvd or blu-ray or anything like that i know it's been on streaming services once or twice here and there but i'm not 100 percent certain about where it is um so but blade is is definitely easy to find on dvd and you know who knows it'll probably get re-released when uh disney you know, decides to put it on their streaming service. It's owned by New Line and Warner Brothers, so I'm not really quite sure how that would work out. Uh, they own the rights to the Blade again, but they do not own the movies of the TV shows because those were put out by New Line Cinema, and Warner Brothers, you know, owns New Line Cinema. So that would definitely be, like, one of those problems. Uh, uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> um but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do possibly we'll, we'll we will do, definitely do Blade Brimstone will be a maybe you know we got stuff in the pipeline with Reaper and I don't know what we're doing after Reaper. What did we say we're doing after Reaper? I don't think we have decided. Although Alienation was at one of those ones I had chosen. Yes, I'm a hundred percent in agreement on Alienation because I thought because I I thought it was longer than it was and we found out it's only one season and then a bunch of movies, right? Yep. Yes. So we should totally do that. So that will definitely be. The thing to do because we also got to do the James Conn movie too. Okay. Because you know it's the prequel before the show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not the prequel, but you know what I mean. The the TV show follows the 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 movie. Um, James Conn is not a fan of that movie. 
<laughs> on the actor studio, he talks about how much he hated it. Aw. Yeah. Um, but uh, where can people find us? On the Dead TV Podcast on Facebook. And you can find us on Twitter at ChrisDSAV and at ElegantlyKiki. And again, you can send us an email, thatradiohorror at gmail.com. And uh, I am, I don't know if Mr. Zeneca is in several War of the World groups on Facebook. Are you in any of them? I am. You are? Oh, okay. Excellent. I am, yeah. Cool. I joined, I joined not too long ago. Awesome. Excellent. So we make posts there, and it's nice to interact with fans there that are huge fans of the uh, War of the World series as well as, as, well as, as well as us. And then they leave comments on the thing. We, to those who have made comments about how political the show has gotten, we only get political if it's relevant to what's happening today, if it's happening on War of the Worlds. Don't forget, if we, I mean, Reaper's going to be a happy show. The cartoon we're doing has some real-world relevance here and there. Mr. Zeneca will really get into that. But uh, Alienation, I can guarantee we're going to get political on, unfortunately. (laughs) I mean... Thank you for tuning into the DTP podcast, and we'll be back next week with the end of season one of War of the Worlds. Night. Night.